Our text this morning is the four references in the passage, verse 9, 11, 16, and 23. David highlights each time the fact that Saul is the anointed of God. Congregation of Jesus Christ, we gather here this morning and, and we enter into a powerful story about the life of David. It's nice through the summer we're looking at the various aspects of David's life and it's instructive in many ways as we seek to live for Jesus Christ our Lord and to do what pleases God. From this very dramatic account, I want to focus on that sense of David submitting his life to God's will. He does that through that sense of of seeing God at work in Saul and recognizing God's work in Saul as the anointed one. What is it to submit to the will of God? What is it to, to sincerely pray like even Jesus Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prayed, not my will, but yours be done. To, to have that sense of, of God's will at the center, not my will, but yours. Well, what is it to pray the Lord's Prayer, where the Lord's Prayer says, your kingdom come, your will be done. To actually enter into that sincerely and truly. What did it mean for David to declare here that he would not lay his hand on the Lord's anointed, that he would await God's will in regard to Saul, that he would honor God's working things out in his time. So the four references here to Saul in 1 Samuel 26 as God's anointed, meaning God has willed Saul to rule. And though David has been anointed, we saw that already in 1 Samuel 16, 10 chapters ago. That hasn't happened. And Samuel, who anointed David with oil, is dead. And David's still not king. And Saul is. What is it to honor God, to submit to God's will in our lives in this world, even though there are very compelling reasons we just want to fix things ourselves? We do that a lot. We think we just want to fix things ourselves. Let's just get at it and fix it. But you notice sometimes the fix isn't really all that good. We try to fix things ourselves. And you wonder, why why is David not doing that. Well, he, he has plenty of reason to just take things in his own hand. Just looking back on 1 Samuel from chapters 18 to 25, like we're jumping here. We looked at David and Goliath on last Sunday, chapter 17. In chapter 18, like David's life is hard. He should just step in and, and fix things himself. After killing Goliath in chapter 17, Saul becomes terribly jealous, and David has to flee. It's not easy. He has to leave everything that's dear to him. Flees for his life. He actually flees even, uh, it's, it's insightful, he leaves without his sword. He's just let out of a window by his wife, and he, he runs off because he's in such danger. And then a little later on, the story continues 
he goes north and he goes to the priest of Nob and he asks the priest for some bread and he asks him, oh, by the way, do you have a sword I could use? I was forced to flee so quickly. And it just so happens the priest of Nob has a sword and it's very instructive. You know which sword that priest has in behind the altar? The sword of Goliath. Sword of Goliath. So he gives David the sword. David, after killing Goliath, hadn't kept a sword. It had gone as a memento sort of thing to a priest, recognizing God's power. And now the priest gives the sword back to David. And what does David say? He says, there's no sword like it. And there isn't. Goliath, a giant, massive sword. David couldn't handle it before. He can handle it now. He takes it. He keeps it with him. He has it with him here in 1 Samuel 26. He is strong. He can take care of himself. He doesn't need God. Very tempting. If you read through those chapters from Samuel 18 to 25, David's living in a cave for a while. Later, he's living in a forest for a while. Later, he's living in a desert for a while. Not easy. Not nice. And there's even a reference to David uh, moving his family from Israel to Moab. His father, Jesse, we talked about on Father's Day. His mother, his relatives, he moves them all to Moab. Does that remind you of anything? Not good. Not good to move to Moab. If you read the book of Ruth, Elkanah and his wife Naomi moved to Moab. Not good. Elkanah died, the sons died. Ruth came back, the Moabites. God was gracious. David is forced to move his family to Moab. Not good. Where is God? Not easy. It's not to say, oh, David, David, everything is so great, so fine. He's just calmly waiting for God's will to unfold. No, it's hard every day, in every way, all the time. So just fix it. Just fix it, David. Just step in and kill Saul. And he has another reason to kill Saul, because Saul is more and more evil. In 1 Samuel 22, we read about Saul ordering the execution of 85 priests. 85 priests of God. Saul orders them executed. And then he orders their families executed. So Saul deserves to die. So David should just kill him. Lots of reasons for David to step in. David had a chance in 1 Samuel 24 in the cave where David cuts off a bit of Saul's robe and confronts him. And David might have thought better of it, say, I should have just killed him then. And now he has a chance again. What is it to submit our will to God's will? 
especially when it's obvious. I mean, it's totally obvious. It's completely obvious that God, God's not getting it done. God needs help. Doesn't he? He's so weak and obviously he doesn't know what's going on. So the temptation is there. Hugely for David. Take matters into your own hands. This is a similar temptation that Jesus faced in Matthew 4. As Jesus comes as our Savior, it says that Satan came to him and said to him too, you're hungry. Jesus had been 40 years in the desert. Satan says, take matters into your own hand. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus says, no. Jesus needed fame, and he needed to have some influence. So Satan says, jump off the temple, and I'll save you, and then everybody will listen to you, and you'll be able to do what you need to do. Jesus says, no. And then Satan offers him, too, all the kingdoms of the world, because Jesus, you're coming to be ruler of the world right here. I'll give them to you right now. Just worship me. Jesus says, no. That's so easy, so handy. Jesus, just take care of it. You can do it. No. Waiting for God's will to unfold is the thing that is required. And in 1 Samuel 26, we see it when David is struggling in this area. And in this particular passage itself, when he is given a second chance to to take matters into his own hands. And there is, uh, first of all, the reference to his family, by his family, that that the desire of family is above God's will. In verse 6, Abishai is mentioned. Now, it doesn't make it absolutely clear, but just to clarify for you, Abishai is the son of Zariah. Zariah is David's sister. Abishai is David's nephew. Abishai is a strong young warrior. He is a good man. And so when David needs help, his family members say, I will help you, and that's good. For family to help family is good. Abishai said, let's go. And so they sneak into the camp, and it's dangerous, and they're as good as dead. But family's there. Wonderful. Abishai can't believe it, that they have this chance to take care of him. And so he says to David, too, you don't even have to kill him. I know that bothers you a little bit with your big sword. You don't even have to. I'll just kill him for you. Boy, what a family member. Talk about supportive. I'll take care of this problem for you. No, David says. Family is not helpful here. We are going to honor God in his anointed. We are going to confess that God wills to work through Saul. David rebukes his family member. He denies himself. He submits to God's will because he believes with his whole heart that God knows what he is doing. We might say it, but do we really believe it and act on it? Then you have Abner, verse 16. Abner is Saul's general. 
Abner fails to protect God's anointing. Abner is not taking his job seriously. He's not taking Saul seriously. He's not taking God seriously. Abner has decided, along with the 3,000 men, that they have a very sad excuse for a king here, and they're not going to protect him. They're supposed to be on guard. They're supposed to be watching over, but they're not. It's the opinion, and it's the majority opinion, that this is not someone they are interested in protecting. And so David has to confront Abner. Saul is God's anointed. We are not serving Saul. We are serving God. And so the will of God is at work. And no matter what everyone thinks, God's will must be done even though a majority disagree. Finally, verse 17, David himself speaks to Saul about his own inner hurt. And there is the sense as he goes on speaking to Saul that he feels he has suffered enough. And he has suffered enough. He's been pushed out of Israel. His life is miserable. He, his family is threatened. And, and he, that sense too, take things into my own hands. is a real struggle. And yet David ends his words with verse 23, I will not harm the Lord's anointed. There's that, that constant sense of, of seeking to, to hold clearly to the Lord's anointed, to recognize God's work in Saul. Submit to God's will, to accept that Saul is God's anointed king, that God is aware of all the trouble, that God will act in his time. And that's what David says here, that, that he might die, Saul might die in his home, or he might die in battle, but it's up to God. Saying, on the one hand, too, more completely, God knows everything about this situation, my situation, Saul's situation. God knows it all. God Will is at work. God's timing is priority. God's plan, God's purpose. It's a very high view of God. And though, though David has permission from his family, though, though everyone else openly would be just as happy if he killed Saul, though, though he himself would prefer to have Saul gone and be king, God's will. It's, it's a powerful, powerful picture of, of honoring and submitting our lives to God's will. We need to submit all things to God's will. That's what our text highlights this morning. That's the significant and relevant and practical point. Our highest priority is on the right of God to work out his will according to his wisdom and his good pleasure. It's God's will above all else. Above what we prefer. Above what we might be able in ourselves to manipulate. Above pain and hardship and upset and inconvenience. And personal preference. The passage is about submitting to the perfect will of God. Because God knows best. So it's very challenging. Very challenging for us. How do we apply it to our lives? If we look at the various areas 
that, that are mentioned, that we, we live in a way, do not let anything hurt or harm or kill what the Lord has anointed. To move that, that into even a family context where, where say, uh, families together, even, even parents and kids, and, and one of the kids says too, I feel I'd, I'd like to serve uh, some really poor folks in a really dangerous part of the world, that, that I feel God has called me to do that. And, and the family, very quickly, like Abishai, just one thrust, kill that idea. That's not going to happen. You're not going to go anywhere dangerous, and in fact, you're not going to leave home. You get a good job, and you stay close. So, so it's the will of God, dead. The will of family is first. It's good to be close as family. It's good to be supportive, absolutely. But there is in each of our lives a call of God that may take some farther away. We have people from China here. Yeah. How do you get there? God's call? Go. But we are often, even as family, very very narrow, very limited, and the will of family can often come above what might indeed be the will of God. And so we need to be careful. Jesus says in Matthew 10 and Mark 10 again, those who leave father and mother, home and family for my sake will be rewarded. Well, forget that. We don't need to listen to Jesus there. Or do we? So there is that sense of what, what is the, the family's place in supporting family members to go forward in the will of God, truly trusting, not killing what God would have anointed, not hurting their plan or God's will worked out in their lives. There's a second area of the will of the majority. Uh, just thinking about how that might apply in our, in our context, uh, we do find in our culture in our group culture, a particular attitude, the will of the majority, even towards something anointed, say the Lord's Day, like this Sunday. The Sunday is, is like an anointed day of God. It's a special day that God has set aside. But, but, but sometimes the group mentality is, oh, why bother? Why bother? Just like Abner, why bother with God's anointed? Why bother with honoring God's will in terms of the Sunday? Abner feels he knows better. Some people too, Christians feel, ah, who needs Sunday? Who needs to go to church? And so the the sense of protecting what God has anointed, protecting a special day where God calls us to honor him and to to give to our time and, and a worshipful presence to him. Say, well, I don't know. It's not really worth it anymore. I'd prefer to do something else. That, that struggle continues. And even, even some people can add too, like Abner said too, well, Saul, he's, he's no good. Well, people say too, the church has, has got lots of problems. Forget it. Why bother? And so that mentality, the group deciding, thinking too, God is wrong to say, come on Sunday. 
we'll decide. We'll do what we want. That, that sense, do not lay hands on the Lord's anointed, comes into our view often in different ways. Finally, the, the sense too of David himself. David himself, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. We see examples of that in our culture. The discussion about euthanasia is coming more and more. And it's true, hard situations arise. And we can fully sympathize with people who struggle. And we recognize, too, it's not easy. But is it our will or is it God's will? Who holds us in life? Or do we just take matters into our own hands? Those realities continue to confront us. David, David gets it. He gets it. He says, God's will above all in all things, a very high view of God. Now, I suggest that reading 1 Samuel 26, bring this to your understanding. I, I don't doubt that you might still say to me, challenging, but but it's still hard to really enter into because, because, yeah, an Old Testament story, all this talk about Saul and anointed, what does it have to do with us? Well, let me clarify one more thing that brings it totally into our perspective. I've hinted at it. There's one distinction that we need to make. When we read this passage, in 1 Samuel 26, there is the idea of the Lord's anointed. Let me read the word as it appears in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. So 1 Samuel 26, verse 9, do no harm to the Messiah, Jesus. 1 Samuel 26, 11, never let me hurt the Messiah. My Lord Jesus. 1 Samuel 26, 16. Guard the Messiah. Guard the word and will of the Lord Jesus. 1 Samuel 26, 23. Never do anything against the Messiah. Jesus, the anointed one. And we can even add it one step further. The Greek word for anointed, you say it all the time. Christ. It's not Jesus' last name. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus, the anointed one. Honor the anointed one. That's what we're being told. We are being told that we need to honor the anointed one. There's where God's blessing lies. Jesus is God's anointed, our Messiah, the Christ. We submit our lives to him as our God and King. Amen.